you're listening to Death of the Reader. We are back for 2020. And oh my goodness, Herds, we have the show to start the year with the guest, with the book, the yeah, mystery. I, I don't know how I managed to line all this up. We're doing The Murder on the Orange Express yes. by Agatha Christie mm-hmm. with Hercule Poirot himself yes. on mic for us this evening. This oh is my insane. goodness. How do we get here? <laughs> Magic. So coming up later on the show, we have David Suchet, who played Hercule Poirot for oh 25 goodness. years. 25? 25 that's, years. That's longer than I've been alive. I will not disclose. Um... <laughs> But yeah, he is in Sydney and Australia and New Zealand in general for a series of talking engagements. Mm. He is on this Thursday night as we uh, as we do the show now. If you're listening to the replay show, which we have now on Thursday night, uh, it is currently during Poirot and me oh. with uh, David Suchet. And if you're oh. listening to this in the auditorium at the Sydney Opera House, for some reason, we are in the room. Give us a wave. Hi. How you doing? Also, take your headphones out. Pay attention to David. <laughs> Watch the show, please. <laughs> My goodness. So yes, fortunately, Agatha Christie is a very kind individual and split her book up into three parts yeah, for us. Yeah, it's super convenient. So we're going to be tackling part one today, yes. part two next week, and part three the week after. Nice and straightforward. That's how I like my murder mm-hmm, mysteries. Mm-hmm. If for whatever reason you have a different edition of the book which doesn't have it divided that way, I know my Audible copy, starring mm. David Suchet, mind you, oh. um, has chapters one and two is part one, two and three is part two, and five and six is part three. Okay. <laughs> Just be aware. Check check with your local library. Figure that one out. Ask them. But yes, we are Take covering part podcast. one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to be looking at the murder of w- w- one Ratchet. Yes. Mr. Ratchet. Mr. Also known Ratchet. as K- Cassetti. Is a, is a man who's been murdered on a train in the middle of the snow. Mm-hmm. And we're tasked with discovering who is, who is the murderer. I think it goes with saying that this is one of the most iconic murder mystery stories of all time. Yeah. Uh, you know, there there is a contentious debate as to whether Agatha Christie's finest story is uh, is the murder of Roger Ackroyd or uh, or this one. And there's probably some people out there who'd maybe say Death on the Nile. I'm not personally in any of those camps. Personally, I think the greatest <laughs> murder mystery story of all time is oh. Too Many Cooks, oh. as we decided last season on the show. Definitively, objectively, of course. Uh-huh. And of yeah. course, you can catch all of review season up online on the podcast and at 2SER.com. But Herds... Mm. For a murder mystery that is as lauded and as famed as this one, I wasn't particularly impressed. No? No. You're enjoying it? Well, here's the thing is I, I I can see exactly why it is as famous as it is, mm. but I don't think that it is held up. Sure. There's a lot of language and a lot of quirks and a lot of structure to this story that just isn't particularly engaging. I guess so. I don't, I'm enjoying all the ex- eccentricities. I'm enjoying the fact that they throw in, you know, a fair bit of French. Mm. And I'll let you know, I've never experienced Hercule Poirot in mm. all of his l- little majesty balled up in a, you know, a bundle of scarves mm-hmm. and with little mustaches sticking yes, out. Yes, I love him. I don't, I don't know about the rest of this novel. We're only short way in, but I am loving him as a character. Mm. He is not what I was expecting for a detective. Um, 
and he's he's precious. Yeah. I think one of the things that always makes me enjoy Poirot the most over any other detective mm. is the way that Christie uses him to piece up, like to pick apart the cast of the novel. Sure. There's a lot of detectives and a lot of authors who when they write a fact and they put it into the book, they will go, this is the fact it has been said, we can move on. Mm. But Poirot comes in and he does something where he goes like, ah, yes, this is most definitely a murder. And then someone else in the car says, yes, it's definitely a murder. And Poirot goes, why do you think that? Mm. And it's such a clever way of picking apart the psychology of the cast. And it's not to say that other authors haven't done it, but that I think that is one of the reasons that Poirot stands out the most to me of all of the detectives I've read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely enjoying... Uh, we've only had sort of a, a, a spotlight, you know, kind of moving back and forth between the cast, but there's certainly a, a, a large number of colorful characters on this train. Um, I, I flicked a little bit ahead. There's a little, there's like a map of the train and things. Yes. It's crazy. Like, clearly that's going to be important, but like... I just want to say I love Mrs. Hubbard. She may be my favorite character in this novel. I love I love her obsession with, is it her daughter? Mm-hmm. Who she just is telling everybody about on the train. Oh, it's, it's very fantastic. dramatic. I love her. Because Poirot is such an uh, emphatic character and such an empathetic character, it means that, you know, you're able to flesh out the cast a lot more in a much shorter space of time through his observations, you know, through him coming in and being like, wow, she certainly seemed like a wild animal. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's a very, very colorful perspective compared to some of the clinical detectives like, you know, S.S. Van Dyne. Yeah, he, he seems very... um he seems very observational, mm. um, especially in the opening chapters. You know, it's mostly uh, there's a, an officer who's staying with him on the platform and the officer is making most of the conversation. And then later on when he follows, uh, well, I, I guess he, he listens in on Debenham and, uh, and and the colonel having a conversation. Like, he's not as active, at mm. least in the early part of the mystery. Maybe that'll change once we get to the actual, you know, the investigation of the murder. Yeah. But, like, he doesn't seem to be a very active detective. And I kind of like that. That's kind of good for a change. He's still definitely more active than someone like Nero Wolf. Nero Wolf. <laughs> that's that's an extreme, though. That is a very deliberate extreme. Very deliberate extreme. But, yeah. Um, I, I do like the way that, you know, working with all of these characters, he kind of creates his own Watsons for himself. You know, mm. it's obviously still Christie's decision to put in, for example, uh, Monsieur Bouc, who yeah. is a, you know, former contact. But even when he's picking a part and he goes to McQueen and starts asking him questions, rather than making it feel like he's interrogating McQueen, he's like, oh, yes, McQueen, fantastic observations. Do tell me more, you very smart man. <laughs> and it's great. just, ah. It, oh. It is plainly obvious reading this story, even though I don't think it has aged as well as I expected, mm. it is still clearly iconic for an, a very definitive reason. It's all right. I'm finding it fascinating to read through. Mm. Um, and thankfully, uh, for all involved, there there may be some time puzzles in this, but technically not a train puzzle. The train stops moving at some point. <laughs> so there is no possibility big, of big, an actual trade puzzle in this novel, which I appreciate. Big technicalities Thank there. goodness. I mean, who knows? Maybe it turns out that another train came along the tracks and oh my goodness. P- picked up the culprit b- and caused the snowdrift. You think that the snowdrift is a machination of the murderer? Why else would it or happen? murderers, plural. What, is the, many there what are. is the point of Agatha Christie stopping this train if there is not good reason to do so? Oh, we'll have to, we'll have to figure that out. Yeah, so we'll dig into your solutions after it's speaking gonna be to good. David Suchet. It's going to be good. We should lay down here that Monsieur Ratchet was killed with uh, either 10, 12, or 15 stabs, according yeah. to uh, our initial observations. By the doctor, who mm-hmm. we conveniently have on the train, who is a good friend of Monsieur Book. I mean, thankfully, what kind of murder mystery would it be without a doctor? You're right. 
we have to des- decide, of course, whether or not we can we can trust the doctor. But I, I anyway, we'll, we'll get to that yes. in these solutions. I'm pretty confident in the doctor's mm-hmm. testimony here. We'll see. And, and we find out in short order through a semi-burned letter found in uh, Ratchet's room that oh he is, goodness. in fact, Cassetti, the uh, machinator of a child kidnapping He's, scheme. Apparently, he is a child kidnapper. Yes. Um, he kidnapped some, some little girl, apparently, named Armstrong. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like the mastermind behind that. And so, who knows what's going on there? Yeah, I was a little torn reading for the first time through this story last year. Sorry, mm. no, it was, oh my goodness, it was two years ago now. Uh. Um, yeah, reading through this story a couple of years ago, I was really confused by the presentation of Cassetti because it's like, we come in here and we don't have any information about Cassetti. It is only mm. provided to us through Poirot to start, which, first of all, uh, excuse me, Monsieur Knox, could we <laughs> get an audit on this story for that? <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Um, but, you know, it both, we shouldn't know it coming in, so I thought it can't be a clue, but also it's we weird. spend so much time on it, and it's thus also, it has to be a clue. It's also weird, I think, to like, like, it seems like Wretch is being, like, he's a villain, supposedly. He kidnaps children yes. and he killed them. Like, I think the scheme was that if they think they're going to get caught, then they they off their their like kidnapping victims yes. before they can be caught. So there's nothing to nothing to trace back to them, mm-hmm. which is ludicrous. Um, it's and strange. very vicious. Yeah, incredibly. Like we have an outright villain as our murder victim, which is extremely strange. Mm-hmm. I can't think of another novel which, at least from the outset, usually it's like uncovered over time that there's stuff going on in the background. But I almost wonder if we're going to have a flip on this and actually Ratchet's going to turn out to be the good guy. That'd be insane. That would be quite That'd something. That'd be insane. Um, I'd love that. But you know what, Herds? Yes, Flex? Uh, it's looking about time to get David Suchet on the line. Let's get him in here. Get him in the room. I want to meet that man. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is our first episode for 2020. And the best so far. <laughs> Objectively. You can't even deny that. You're listening to 2SER. This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. And on the line, we are extraordinarily privileged to be joined by David Suchet, Hercule Poirot himself, who played the great detective in Agatha Christie's Poirot for 25 years, undertaking the monumental task of adapting every single Poirot novel to the screen. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very nice to be with you. So, David, how did you end up playing the character for 25 years? Was it part of the plan to do that full stretch from the beginning when you famously ignored your brother's advice not to take the role? <laughs> no. Well, no. Um, I was contracted. This, I mean, a lot of people don't know this. I'm very interested to find this out. I was contracted to do one season of 10 short stories from the book uh, uh, where it's published, the Agatha Christie published about 30 mm. short stories. And I was employed to do 10 of those over six months. And that was to be the end of the contract. Mm. That story of your brother ignoring the role, obviously that you know had a, had a big impact on how you played the character, and at least as far as I see it. Could you tell us a bit about that story behind your brother's objection to the role? Yes. I mean, although, you know, it's, it's now a funny story and mm. people laugh at it, he was being quite serious because mm. the previous incarnations of the role of Poirot were all a bit jokey. Mm. Um, I remember watching, uh, indeed, the wonderful Albert Finney uh, uh, playing the Poirot on, on Murder on the Orient Express. 
And one did laugh and one did smile at it. And I thought it was a wonderful interpretation. And he wore a hairnet and all the rest of it. And, and then I watched, not only watched Peter Ustinov, but I was also with Peter Ustinov. Mm. I played Inspector Jap in a film that he made called 13 at Dinner for, for television. Mm. Um, so, yes, and I loved, I loved uh, Peter's interpretation of, of, of Hercule Poirot. Um, but the previous incarnations made him a bit of a joke, a mm. bit of a comedic eccentric in a way that uh, my brother and a lot of other people would look at me as being a classical theater actor and say, is that the sort of character that you really want to play? Mm. Because if that is, uh, you know, you're in danger of, of losing where, where your career is, might be heading at that time. Mm. I was introduced to the character that she wrote, and the character that she wrote was not that jokey or silly. He was comedic in the terms of being an eccentric, um, and one could be amused by him. But he wasn't—he wasn't, he wasn't a, a bit of a—he wasn't a buffoon. People—he was not this. And so, that uh, my ethos, as always, as an actor, has been to serve my writer. Yeah, David, I, I know that. Uh... Agatha Christie was notoriously unwelcoming of, of adaptations, uh, and yet her daughter, uh, Rosalind, uh, told you she would have been happy with your portrayal. What was it like to hear that as an actor? And, and what was it you think that set you apart? I think when she told me, when Rosalind Hicks told me, and you're right, Agatha Christie was famous for not enjoying hmm. um, being quite rude about other people's interpretation. But that's because she was a novelist and not a dramatist, well, she, although she did write plays, but she was essentially a novelist. But when um, Rosalind Hicks, her daughter, came to me after about five or six years and said that she really did believe her mother would, would have been very, very pleased with my interpretation, it was, for me, the highest accolade I could have received. Mm. So you kept this book, uh, which is cr uh, chronicled in your um, memoir, the uh, me, uh, me and Poirot, that define the 93 main character ticks of Poirot that you used. And the one I hear brought up the most is that you borrowed a trick from Laurence Olivier to stick a coin between your butt cheeks to master the rapid mincing gait of Poirot. But which of those 93 points do you think the character was most built upon that doesn't get enough credit? Order and method, Hastings. Mm. Order and method. Fact. Deal with the facts. Deal with the little details. Because that sums up Poirot. Mm. Order and method, fact and detail. Yeah. D David, I, I know that on the set you had a very a very particular method of acting uh, and you occasionally had even conflict with the, the production crew on how he should be portrayed. How, how important did you feel your, your role was as Agatha Christie's custodian over the character? It was beholden to me because of the way I took roles to serve my writer. And you're right, very often a director would come in or the, uh, other people would come in, writers would come in uh, and, and want to change that interpretation. And usually to make him a bit of an idiot, a bit of a buffoon. And because I wanted to just to play the character that she wrote in the story, and I would study her story way before I got the script so that I could amend the script mm. and talk to the producers, etc., about it. Uh, there were many confrontational moments when um, I had to defend my character. And I, I was quite 
vociferous about it, and I was not always easy or, or indeed that amenable to, cha to change at all. So it, it, we had many confrontations, and I would not back down if I really believed that my character, it was essential that I played him in the way that Agatha Christie played mm. that moment. Then I would hold fast to that, and I would I would not bend. I became his defender and his protector. Mm. So, David, we have you on the line because you are coming up with a Speaking Tour of Australia, talking about Poirot and your character and career at large. What can people expect from those shows? Well, I'm hoping, and I'm developing even now with my producer, Lyle McLean, what I'm hoping the evening will be will be, as, as it says, Poirot and Moore retrospective. It just so happens that here, in 2019 now, it's my 50th year as an actor. And I can look over 50 years, and in the, in the chair on stage with me will be the really talented and wonderful Jane Hutchins, who will be talking to me about the very first roles that I played. Uh, at school, uh, moving into the national, uh, to, to the uh, youth theatre of Great Britain, moving into drama school and the difficulties that I had at drama school, the realisation that I had that it was to be a character actor, and that led to the repertory theatre system, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company for 13 years, etc., etc., talking about my early career, building up to other television series that I headed, but obviously the peak of that would be Hercule Poirot. Right. And that retrospective will continue right through in the first half. And then in the second half, I'll be talking a lot about my experience of Shakespeare, what it did, what, what playing Shakespeare did for me as an actor, and how it stood me in good stead, in fact, for understanding language, cadence, um, for developing the character of Hercule Poirot. And then I will be demonstrating speeches. I'll be performing for you as well. Mm and then ending up with a, a very much more detailed example of uh, the way that I developed Poirot. And I'm hoping, and we're discussing it even yesterday, I'm hoping I might have my original list of 93 little notes that I used to carry around with me. And That's I'll amazing. be sharing that with the audience. 50 years as an actor, 25 as, as Poirot. What parts of, of Poirot have kind of become inseparable from your own character these days? Um, he taught me something that has stood me in very good stead, um, which I will hope to develop for the rest of my life. And that is he taught me how to listen well. Poirot actually says to one character, uh, I listen to what you say, but I hear what you mean. And I've found that that's invaded my own life, not only invaded in a negative way, but I hope, <laughs> uh, I hope has, uh, has helped me to listen to people in a way that I might not have listened to them without having played them. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson we could all learn, Herds. Yeah, it's a good one. I like it. Now, finally, before we let you go, David, we are currently covering Murder on the Orient Express. I've read the whole thing, but Herds is only about a third of the way through. Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips for Herds to go through and understand this mystery through and through? Well, it's a very complex mystery. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but one, one, if you see the, my, my film of that, one always has to remember that Poirot is a very, very strong, uh, he has a very strong faith and is a Catholic. I look forward to it. I hope I can solve it by the end. <laughs> oh. Fantastic. All right. Well, it'd be interesting. Yes. Have a go. I didn't. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs>
<laughs> well, that has been David Suchet. David is in Australia doing a variety of shows from January through February, including two shows on the 23rd at the iconic Sydney Opera House, and we'll have details on our website, 2SER.com. You can check out David. Thank you very much again for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been such a pleasure. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Murder on the Orient Express, the iconic novel by Agatha Christie, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. That was David Suchet. Oh my goodness, Herds. We did it. We got the man himself on the show. We are currently talking part one of Agatha Christie's iconic Murder on the Orient Express. And it's time now for Herds to break out his initial solutions, see what is going on. Can the man solve the novel? Can the man get the first points of the year? Yeah, yeah. I just about cleaned house last year. I was I was only one point away from you missed getting one of those every points, uh, story. <coughs> oh goodness, oh, herds! Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a little bit a little bit sick in the studio here. Yes, herds herds has somehow managed to pick himself up a oh, bit of dear. a nasty cough thanks to all of this smoke that's hanging around. It's been Sydney. it's been awful. Every time I go outside, mm-hmm. it's just oh, it's an assault on the senses. I'm sure those of you listening locally will be more than familiar with the bushfire situation, but if you're listening internationally, like some of our wonderful listeners do, be sure to check out Two SER's bushfire coverage on the website two ser.com. Yeah. You can understand why Herds is unwell. Get on that. Get my <laughs> voice better. Let me let me sing. Next let time, me sing on. Next time, hit the button when you're going to cough. I will. Herds. I will. That'll make Don't it quiet worry. for the people. Don't worry. It's all lit up. I got it. I got my <laughs> finger on it right now just in case. Oh, dear. So, The yeah. Murder of One Cassetti. It is Cassetti a, Ratchet. Yeah. It is a very, very peculiar one. He's been stabbed 10, 12, or 15 times. I'll let you know that it's 12. Okay. Um, sure. All right. It's a weird number. All right. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, the so going into this, uh, it's there's a lot of like weird contradictions. There's a lot of clues, and it's pointed out even that mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. N- none of this makes sense because he's been stabbed like a whole bunch of times, and the the doctor who I'm going to decide to trust, uh, he says that you know some wounds have been inflicted clearly by a woman, and some clearly by a man, and some clearly by someone who's left handed, someone who's right handed. So my my gut is telling me that we I don't think we're dealing with just mm-hmm. one killer. I think that we're dealing with someone who has killed this man and then somebody who is coming afterwards and be like, "Oh no, I didn't get to murder them, so I'm going to just stab him anyway." Mm-hmm. That's my that's my initial impression. I am very curious and I was reading through the first time about that, you know, assumption that he can tell the handedness of the person stabbing. Yeah. Like if they're using a short, straight blade and it's yeah. going straight down, I guess you could maybe have a bit of a like diagonal angle from being left or right-handed, yeah. but there's a lot of presumption going on there, and it also there assumes that the person has an accurate hand with the knife that they wouldn't like, you know, sure. swing sideways or try to do some backhanded nonsense. Yeah. Initially, when I was reading through this story, that was the line that made me most suspicious of the Doctor. Right. But then, you know, Poirot doesn't question his character yeah. at all. So I can I, I can see so. why you're confident like, there. I, I don't think that the doctor is going to be a problem for us. Yeah. However, we are given in the very initial part of the novel, which I don't know, it seems obvious, but I feel like my gut is telling me we got Debenham and, and the Colonel Arbuthnot, that gentleman, those two, they're like walking off the train and they're like, boy, golly gee, we really have to get onto that 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 transitioning train, the Orient Express, we need to be there. Like, I feel like it's got to be 
at least Debenham, I think, mm-hmm. has to be one of the two killers. Yeah. I'm not as set on Arbuthnot. Like, especially with the uh, the pipe cleaner there that, like, points to a man and the scarf that, like, points to a woman. Like, mm. that's really weird. I have no idea what's going on with that. But I um, maybe, like, Debenham has gone in and she's trying to, like, shift the blame onto Arbuthnot. That's mm. what this whole, like, setup is. Um, and maybe there's another killer. I don't know. Yeah. That's the part that's, like, concerning me. I think the thing I'm most interested in in this story, particularly when we get to who did the killing, is when we look at the locked room. You know, there's there's this fantastic discussion between uh, Dr. Constantine and Poirot where, uh, yeah, where Dr. Constantine comes in and says, you know, oh my goodness, this locked room, it's impossible. How could it be, how could it be done? And Poirot just goes, well, yes, but, you know, it's a locked room and thus it must yeah. be solved. I mean, that's the trick for any locked room is exactly. that it's not actually a locked room. Here's the thing. I don't actually think this locked room is that hard to break open. I have at least three solutions that can, that can work here. I completely um, agree. It is like, a very, very straightforward one. It's not. But which, not which solution you choose sure. greatly changes who the culprit could be. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I have three thoughts on this. Um, the most straightforward one is like, I don't know. The, I, I know because I've seen uh, courtesy of certain other stories that I've, that I've, that I've read and experienced. Mm-hmm. I know that the Orient Express has like, like little, um, they're not bathrooms. They have like wash basins in them. Yes. Uh, like between the compartments. And I know that you like, you can go from one person's compartment into that washroom and then out through the other compartment, assuming that the, those doors there are unlocked because um, they can be like locked from either side, I think. I don't know if what you're describing is exactly in this novel, but there is the communicating I know. door. I know, I know there are like yeah. different um, different models of the trains mm. here, but that's the one that I'm most familiar yeah. with. The, um, the, the way, I, I will say, the story does let you know that there are the communicating doors, okay. which I'm not... It doesn't ever explicitly say how they function on this train, but basically it is a door, presumably just, I thought, like a little window between each sure. of them that I believe is large enough to fit a person through. Okay. Part of the setup for this locked room is that the one to Cassetti's room is locked from the far side, mm. which means that yeah. it would be very easy for the culprit to go through that, lock it from the other side, and then yes. exit through someone else's room. Yes. However, yes. how could they have done that when we know that Miss Hubbard was awake? Uh, I mean, maybe she was asleep at the time, or maybe they were stealthy and slipped through, like it's dark it's during this. It was at like what, like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. or something like that? It was between those those mm. hours, I think. Um, so you could have slipped through while she was asleep. The other the other solution that I have, which doesn't involve any moving through Mrs. Hubbard room, uh, is actually even more straightforward. Uh, you could just climb out the window. Now, I know there are no tracks on yes. the snow. You could climb along the train. you could climb along the outside of the train, and it's really not as hard as it looks, especially if the train is stopped at a snowdrift. Yes. Um, I don't think it would be terribly difficult if, if the murderer or murderers, if they have an accomplice inside, to mm-hmm. let them in another window. Like, you'd literally just be able to go, you know, into uh, r- r- a Ratchet's yes. room through the window if it was open, like, presumably like unlocked beforehand by maybe by an accomplice or maybe Ratchet just leaves his window unlocked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they could just climb in through that window, do the deed, get out, go in through someone else's compartment, um, which immediately leads me to actually look at um, McQueen and Arbuthnot yeah. because they make it like, Christy draws us, uh, our attention to the fact that McQueen is like, oh, you should come into my room and we should definitely be in here for the night together. Yeah. Like that seems like a setup to me of some kind. Mm. Um, one of them would very easily, maybe Arbuthnot is the one who like 
you know, whisks his way out the window mm. uh, and then just heads in a, in a ratchet's room through there. Yeah. Um, the other solution, obviously, is if they've managed to steal a passkey, um, which is something that I think all of the, like, conductors and the, mm-hmm. the people in each of the different train carriages, it wouldn't even have to be the person who's in the carriage with them. I think that they... I think that if you got someone from a different carriage and got their key, you'd be able to use it just on any lock in the train. So those three solutions, the like moving between the compartments, climbing out the window and using a key, Mm -hmm. like they all bust the locked room like really very easily. It's not a complicated Mm. like solution. Any of those I feel. I think that's one of the other reasons that this story is so iconic. Maybe not amongst the general public, but at least among murder mystery fans is that it is a fantastic locked room in that it is so obvious to get out of Mm. but each solution changes the angle you're looking at oh actually there was one thing i wanted to touch on um ratchet actually speaks Mm -hmm. supposedly um we're told that uh we hear a a man speaking in french through the door um i have two theories on this do you know what he says by the way Uh, everything is fine yes Uh, something like that um which seems like a bit of a forced response which is why i'm suspicious of it Mm -hmm. i think that he dies either immediately before or immediately after that that phrase yes um that's the impression i'm getting interesting because i think that either debenham is coming through the window Mm -hmm. and she's like threatening him or like let me tell you about the tragedy of the armstrong case and how i'm connected to it she does her emotional thing and then she stabs him a bunch of times or um if it's the the man then we don't even need ratchet to say those words because we have someone else to speak it for them Mm -hmm. right um, because in order for the conductor who comes up to the door, it'd have to be probably a male voice, someone who can speak French. And I think, is Ratchet American? He's American. He is American. It'd probably have to be one of the Americans, which leaves us with McQueen, who, spoilers, is one of those two I mentioned earlier. Um, or I think the the valet, um, both of those characters are actually employed by, by Ratchet. Mm-hmm. I think either of them would be a, a good pick. Very, very interesting. Well, yeah. Herds, that is all the time we have for today. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us here on Death of the Reader, our first episode back for 2020. Thank you very much for David Suchet appearing on the show. Again, details will be on the podcast, on the website, or you can check out the Sydney Opera House website if you are interested in catching David Suchet while he is in the country. Oh my goodness, Hurt, it's good to be back. It's good to be in the saddle, you know? We'll be back with part two next week. This is Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. You're listening to 2SER.